We're presented here in these first verses, in verses 15 through 21, with a couple of options. Did you see your options as laid out in verses 15 through 21? Look carefully then how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise, making the best use of your time because the days are evil. Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. So the options laid out before us this morning are wisdom or folly. We can walk as wise men and women, or we can walk as foolish men and women. And the, the alternative to being foolish, in verse 17, is understanding what the will of the Lord is. So he doesn't say, don't be a fool, go get life experience and gain wisdom. He says, don't be a fool, but understand what the will of the Lord is. So that means in the way that we live, in the way that we eat, the way that we uh, use our money, the way that we relate to other people, we can either do so like fools, or we can do so in light of what the will of the Lord is. Now I know a lot of folks want to know what God's will is for their life. And they look for it in it like they look for a cloud formation to arrange in such a way so they can say, Oh, that's God's will for me. I, I am to go here and do this. Or they look for it almost like a fortune cookie. They they just want God to say, You, here's your special mission, here's your will. And what we miss is that God has told us what his will is for us. It's in the Bible, and he tells us several things right here. So don't be fools. Understand what the will of the Lord is. And he's told you, and he tells us some of it right here. Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. And do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit. So, okay, here's, here's one example of the Lord's will for you. He doesn't want you being drunk with wine. Instead, he wants you to be filled with the Spirit. Now, to be filled with the Spirit is an abstract concept. If I just left, leave you with that, God's will for you is for you to be filled with the Spirit. Go do that. What would you do? How would you go about it? It's one of these Christian-y phrases that we hear a lot, but maybe we don't understand all that well. Um, if, you want to be f- if you want to fill a cup with milk, you pour it in there and that fills it up. But that's not exactly how it works with being filled with the Holy Spirit. When you become a Christian, one of the blessings, one of the benefits as you become a new creature and adopted is you're given the Spirit of God. You're given that new Spirit, the Holy Spirit. You have the Holy Spirit. I had a professor at Southeastern when I was there in seminary. The way he described it is he came in and he sat on the edge of his desk and he had a Coke bottle. And he was just doing his normal introductory stuff and the whole time he was shaking this Coke bottle. Just shaking it while he was, you know, taking attendance and asking us how our weeks were. And then he sort of stood up near the girl who's sitting right in front of him and acted like he was about to open it. And of course he's like, no, I don't do it. And he, he, his lesson that morning was what it means to be filled with the Holy Spirit. It doesn't mean that you need God to give you something new. It means that you need to stir up within you something he's already given you. We, we stir up the Holy Spirit in ourselves so that it fills us up and it starts to overflow into these acts of worship and obedience that he's going to describe here in the next few verses. Now, part of stirring that spirit up in you is what you're doing right now. Coming here, 
you know, fellowship, being stirred to worship with your brothers and sisters, hearing God's word and receiving it. So let's look at some of the, the things that proceed from someone who is filled with the Holy Spirit, who has the Holy Spirit just frothing up within them and, and pouring out. Be filled with the Spirit, and then in verse 19, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart, giving thanks always and for everything to, the God, of the, to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. Okay, so don't be fools. Understand what the will of the Lord is. One example, one important example is he wants you to be filled with the Spirit. When you're filled with the Spirit, these are the sorts of things that proceed from your life. You, you begin to address one another differently. You begin to address each other with songs and hymns and spiritual songs and, and that kind of almost musical encouragement and worship toward each other. You begin to address God differently in verse 20. I mean, uh, in the end of verse 19, making melody to the Lord with your heart. 20, giving thanks and for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. So part of being filled with the Spirit has to do with how you interact with people. Part of it has to do with how you love and worship and praise God and your gratitude. And then the part that we're going to focus on this morning is the final example he gives in verse 21. So be filled with the Holy Spirit, dot, 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 Submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. Submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. Mutual submission, submitting to one another as Christians in the church is part of God's will for us. That word submit has to do with rank. It means purposely putting yourself ranked below other people. So in the church... We're all privates looking to generals. It's to go low in rank. It's what Jesus did in Philippians 2. Let me read that to you because it's a perfect example of what this means. In Philippians 2, Paul, kind of getting at the same idea, says, in Philippians 2, 5, Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. So the example we have, the mindset that we've been given as Christians is the mindset that Jesus had when he let go of his rank as equal with God and stepped all the way down the ranks to servant, even down further to servant dying on the cross for us. So that's not just a step down, that's a, that's a leap down from the throne to the cross. That's our example, that's our identity, that's God's will for us. So, it's very important to get this momentum heading into Ephesians 5, uh, Ephesians 5.22. In your Bibles, I wonder if my Bible, it, it breaks it up and it puts a heading before verse 22. Do your Bibles do that? Is there a heading and then 22 seems to start a new thought? Um, you know, in the original language, these headings weren't there. The verse numbers weren't there. So it just flowed 
from everything that I've shared with you now right into verse 22. So we don't pick up verse 22 cold. Wives, submit to your husband as to the Lord. Period. We don't just pick that up cold. We pick that up with this momentum of this is the Lord's will for all of us to submit to one another out of reverence to Christ. In fact, if you look back at the Greek, and I'm no Greek scholar, but there's resources. You can check this out for yourself too to make sure I'm not lying to you. But if you look at the Greek, at the original language, the word submit isn't even in verse 22. It's, it's carried over from verse 21. So it reads more like, be filled with the Spirit, doing these things, doing these things, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ, out of reverence for Christ, wives to your husbands. It flows seamlessly from verse 21. Okay, so, so the idea of wives submitting to their husbands is sewn into the idea of all of our submission to all of us. Okay? So we'll make sure you understand that so nobody throws a shoe at me or anything. It's like he's climbing up the ladder from verse 15 and he's walking out to the end of the diving board and then when he hits verse 21 about submission, it springs him into really the the most lengthy discussion of marriage in the Bible. So something about submission in in the Holy Spirit-inspired mind of Paul makes him think about marriage. And I think it's because marriage is the most concentrated display of Christian submission that exists. That was going to be the title of the sermon. It's going to say, marriage, colon, concentrated Christian submission. But that's not what I ended up. But ultimately, that's what marriage is. It's all this idea of loving one another, submitting to one another, compressed down, distilled, bottled up into one human relationship between a man and a woman. So with that in mind, now let's look into verses 22 through 33 about what submitting to one another in marriage looks like. Now, this is going to be very practical for husbands and wives, but above that, it's going to open our eyes to bigger theological realities. So, uh, if you're not married or, you know, don't check out just because I'm talking about marriage. This is going to help you understand a lot about who Jesus is and who we are as the church. Okay. So, With all that in mind, I want to read to you again. I'm going to read verses 22 through 24, just the first bit about husbands and wives submitting to one another. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its savior. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Okay, so right away we see that submitting to one another doesn't mean that we all submit to one another in the exact same ways. There are different ways that we submit to one another in the body of Christ, and it's especially clear in marriage. The way a husband submits to a wife is different from the way a wife submits to a husband, and vice versa. So we need to talk about headship. What does he mean by, in verse 23, the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church? Now, probably what our minds first go to is, like, authority, as though, like, saying the husband is the head of the CIA. Well, that means he has absolute authority over the CIA. There is an idea of authority, 
But it's bigger than that, and it's a little different from that. God is always related to the church in covenants. You know, when you get married, that's a marriage covenant. So in Adam, it was a covenant, and Adam was the head of the covenant. So when Adam sinned as the head of the covenant, it implicated all of the human race, because he was the head of God's covenant with the human race at that time. Now in Romans, if you remember, I'm sure you do, in Romans, if you remember, the reason we as Christians can be forgiven and cleansed is because we have entered into a new covenant with Jesus Christ as the head. So Jesus is the head of the new covenant, and therefore we are implicated in his righteousness. Whereas under the the Adam covenant, we were implicated in his unrighteousness. So one of the biggest ideas of headship when it talks about covenants, which is what a marriage is, isn't just authority, it's also responsibility. So men, husbands, you don't just have some level of authority as the man of the house. You have absolute responsibility for the house. Everything that happens under your roof may not be your fault, but it is your responsibility because you are the head. Do you remember when Adam sinned? Adam and Eve sinned. Eve ate first. Eve listened to the serpent, and she, she was deceived first, and then she came, and Adam went along with it. Do you remember when God comes down and he's walking through the garden? Who does he come to? Eve? No, he goes to Adam because Adam is the head. Now, I want that responsibility aspect of headship to settle in and sink in to us men. It is no small thing to be the head of this miniature covenant the way Christ is the head of the major new covenant. It is no small thing. It is a big thing. Now, what then is the wife to submit to according to this context? It'll help us if we read further, starting in verse 25. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word so that he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that he might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. For he who loves his wife loves himself, for no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So the primary thing that we have in this context that the wife is submitting to is the radically self-sacrificial love of the husband. Love that looks like Jesus' love bleeding out on the cross. So the idea of the wife submitting to the husband isn't so much the idea of the husband domineering, iron-fisted, my way, Period. I don't want to hear what you have to say. I'm the head. I'm the authority. It's not that so much as the husband being completely scooped out of himself, living for the benefit of his wife. It's the, the husband's submission to the wife is a giving sort of submission. 
The wife's submission to the husband is a receiving sort of submission. Now, without going into any graphic detail, that's one reason why the whole homosexuality thing is a big deal. Because even down to our physical characteristics, this is displayed. So the husband's, sacri- um, the husband's submission to the wife is a giving, is a sacrificial sort of submission. The wife's submission to the husband is a receiving, trusting sort of submission. And I've seen I, in my marital counseling here at the church, I have seen how problems in these areas create almost all of the marital problems, at least the ones that, that people are willing to bring to me. I can sum up almost all the marital issues of the Christians in our church that I've talked to in these categories of, of submission disorders where, where husbands fail to take responsibility. That's how you submit to your wife. Take responsibility. Take responsibility for the decisions. Don't leave your wife hanging out there on her own for the decisions. Now, I'm not saying you make the decisions and you tell her later. That's not Christ-like. You, you, but the dis- ultimate decisions are your responsibility. And I've seen how that breaks down and how that causes trouble, how that leaves the wife to bear this burden that she wasn't meant to. I've seen men um, fail in the area of just taking initiative. Who came to who first? Did the church come to Christ first or did Christ come to the church first? Christ initiated everything with the church. That's part of what it means to be a husband. And I've seen us men fail where we passively float through life. And a lot of it's because we're tired and a lot of it's because we're busy. But the initiative is ours. Whether it's, you know, educating our kids or what we're going to do for vacation. Now, believe me, Meredith is sitting right there looking at me. So I'm not here saying... Do like I do, because I'm awesome. No, I, I am shoulder to shoulder with you in massive failure in these areas. But let this just shape our minds and how we think about it. And, and may God, through the Holy Spirit, enable us to submit and love our wives in these ways. I've seen men fail in that they are selfish. Husbands, when you said, I do... What you were really saying is, I die. I'm dead and I'm now living for you, my spouse. And you might think, well, that's no fun. But you remember what Jesus said? Did he say those who hang on to their lives find it? No, he said those who lose their lives for my name's sake find it. There, there is nothing sweeter as a husband than self-sacrificially loving your wife. But we fail at it. I've seen men fail because they're domineering and they think, I'm the man of the house and what I say goes and I don't care what my wife says. Now, I'm a man so I can talk to the men comfortably, but I have to talk to the women too. No, I've never walked in your shoes. I don't understand firsthand how difficult it can be. But I've seen our women fail too. I've seen them fail in that they try to grapple control 
and take control and take the reins. Now, a lot of that is because the husband has failed in his initiative and responsibility, so you feel like, I've got to make the decision. Somebody's got to do it. I, I understand it, but part of wifely submission is giving room for the husband to lead. And it may be giving room for the husband to grow so that he can. Now, I need to point something out to the women in regard to this, and it's way back in Genesis. You remember when, when, when God came to confront them about their, their sin and their betrayal? He comes to Adam first, but the, the curses he lays out affect everybody. And he says in Genesis 3, uh, verse 16, says to the woman, I will, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. Motherhood from beginning to end is going to be hard. And then this is what I want you to listen to. Your desire, speaking to Eve, your desire shall be for your husband, and he shall rule over you. See, right from the the beginning curse, a submission disorder within marriage was unleashed. The husband would rule over his wife sinfully. But it says to to the woman, your desire shall be for your husband. Maybe some of your translations say your desire, your desire will be against your husband. It's not clear right there what it means, but fast forward into chapter 4. Chapter 4, verse 7. God is talking to um, Cain because he, I don't want to get into preaching a whole other story, but he's talking to Cain and, and he says, okay, I will have to explain the story. Cain and Abel bring their sacrifices Cain's sacrifice isn't acceptable to the Lord, and Cain's angry about it. So God says, why, why is your face fallen? Why are you angry? If you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is for you. It's the exact same wording as what he says to Eve. Your desire will be for your husband. Your desire will be against your husband. Just like sin's desire was for or against Cain. It, it, it has to do with the desire to overcome. It has to do with the desire to take control. It's not something that women have asked for, but many women struggle with it. It's part of our sin nature. Just like men struggle with being passive and not taking leadership, women struggle with being overly aggressive and, and taking that leadership for themselves. And it causes problems. I've seen women also struggle with fear and anxiety more than men. I think part of that is because in marriage, the wifely submission looks a lot like trust. And it's hard because you're looking across the dinner table at this guy who has let you down many times for sure. Women, you are in a very vulnerable position in marriage because God has called you to be like the church is toward Christ. And it requires a great deal of trust, first in God and secondly in your husband. Now, I've seen people succeed in these areas as well, but I point those out just for you to consider that if your marriage isn't going well, maybe it's a submission disorder. Maybe one or both of you needs to submit harder. Now, I want to get to why. Why is it this way? And this will also unleash some power to live this way, I think. Look at verse 32. This is, I think, sort of the key verse to this whole passage. Verse 32. This mystery 
marriage, what he's been talking about. This mystery is profound. And I'm saying that it has to do... I'm sorry, my translation is different than the old one I used. This mystery is profound, and I'm saying that it refers to Christ and the church. Marriage is a mysterious thing. Not like unsolved mysteries where, you know, you need somebody to track down the truth because it's unclear. When the Bible says mystery, it means something that was previously hidden to God's people that he reveals later. Like, for instance, the fact that he was going to welcome us Gentiles into his people That was referred to as a mystery that was revealed only later. See, the full meaning of marriage was a mystery all the way up until God reveals it through Paul. That it ultimately isn't even about me and you. Ultimately, it's about Christ and the church. Marriage, your marriage, isn't ultimately about you. It isn't ultimately about your spouse, and it isn't ultimately about your family. Ultimately... Your marriage is about Jesus Christ and the church. So what we have in this passage is motivation for marital mutual submission and we have sort of the results of it. Remember the motivation back in verse 21? The motivation for our submission to one another says submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. So when you do look across your dinner table at your spouse, you're not to submit to them either in the self-sacrificial way of a husband or in the patient trusting way of the wife because they're so great, but because Jesus is so great. It's out of reverence for Christ that we're motivated to do this. And ultimately, that kind of marital love isn't about you, it's about Christ and the church. It is a miniature like diorama of the gospel. Our marriages as Christians should be daily uh, little, little plays that we live out daily that just display the gospel. When people see our marriages, they should see Christ-like love flowing from husband to wife, church-like response flowing from wife to husband in all the little particulars of marriage because that's what ultimately it's about. Marriage is in reverence to Jesus and it is in reference to Jesus. So, to the church, I just want to say before I invite Jeff and and Tom and Joey to come forward, to the church and to myself, be filled with the Holy Spirit and thus empowered to submit to one another. Spouses, I want to encourage you to embrace your unique submissive roles in marriage. Embrace them. It will be life for you. It will, be, it will give you traction, maybe in some areas that you've lost it in your marriage. And do so out of reverence for Christ and in reference to Christ. Don't get blinders on to where you think it's all about this. It's not. Marriage is big. Marriage is worship. And then I'll close the way Paul does with verse 32. I'm sorry, verse 33. Verse 32 and verse 33. This mystery is profound, and I'm saying that it refers to Christ and the church. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself, 
and let the wife see that she respects her husband. 